Welcome to the Naked Monk. The Naked Monk is for people who want to explore Buddhism without faith or wishful thinking. We've been immersed in its ancient forms and critique it from the inside out, breaking through the crust of tradition in search of the Buddha's true intent. We think of him as having something to say, but also as being mortal like us, and his teaching as both vulnerable to the imperfections of the human mind and a practical tool for everyday life. We're seekers of freedom, a deep life, and the wisdom of the heart. Today I'm talking to David Webster. Dr. Webster teaches religion, philosophy, and ethics at the University of Gloucestershire. He's the author of Dispirited, How Contemporary Spirituality Makes Us Stupid, Selfish, and Unhappy. In addition to scholarly works on Buddhism and the philosophy of religion, David has also written about the blues and death in religions. David is a deep thinker with a light touch, who effortlessly avoids Buddhist terminology to make his points in plain English. His book grabbed my attention as soon as I heard of it, and proved one of the best reads of last year. In this talk we discuss Buddhism light and speculate on its long-term influence on society at large. We consider what the ancestral Western religions would look like today had Buddhism not been an ideal alternative for the counterculture about how Tibetan Buddhism upsets people's ideas of what Buddhism is, and the stereotype of Buddhists as inherently gentle people. David suffered a stroke last year and still has a slight drawl. Here is our conversation. So I'm speaking today with David Webster from the University of Gloucestershire, which is uh, where I grew up. He actually works in Cheltenham, where I went to school. Welcome, David. It's nice to see you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. David is an academic. He teaches uh, religious studies, I believe, is it? Or is it something specific? A course is called Religion, Philosophy and Ethics. And being quite a small team, we teach quite you know, across all areas. So mostly in Buddhism and Hinduism, but also across um, bits of philosophy, um, we like. Now, David recently published a book called Dispirited, which you may have heard of. And if you haven't heard of it, you should read it. Um, in it, David questions the actual word itself, spirited or spiritual in the way that it's used. And there are certain things in the European academic world that you can say in, in, um, in terms of religious studies, and there are things you can't say. And I was a little bit surprised by this. And his book, Dispirited, which is perhaps somewhat atheistic or agnostic in tone. Yeah, more the former than the latter in tone, I'd say. That has raised some eyebrows, and we both sort of smiled at that and thought, well, that's a very good thing, because it, it opens up a, a very interesting train of discussion, which is what I think we're going to start with today. So, David, can you pick up on that and tell us what problem people had with Dispirited? Yeah, I think people found it rather, initially, kind of, it seemed a little perverse to people as to why would you work in a religious studies department if you were or seem to be um, potentially anti-religious, if you seem to have, um, and that's based, I think, on some cases on quite a, a shallow reading of the book, but it seemed to some, because the book had a very atheistic tone, I think that's uh, fair to say, mm -hmm. and was suggesting that certain types of religion were um, deeply problematic, 
You didn't say religions, you said types of religions. Yes, some kinds of ways they engage in with religion um, as individuals had some certain negative potential outcomes. Um, and I think people found that problematic because, one, if someone was so um, adverse to the idea um, or unkeen on the idea of religion, what they're doing studying it in the first place. And secondly, there's a there's a strand that runs through religious studies, I think, that says you should comment on the religions you study, you know, make kind of judgments on them, academic judgments, but that you should um, refrain from making value judgments. So you can study religious, different religions and say, that's a very good way of, of characterising how these people claim this, or that seems like to be a, quite a good reading of that text. But to come out and say, this kind of engagement with the spiritual life is toxic, is bad for people, does people harm, does violence to the idea of truth, that was seen as, oh dear, that's problematic. But in religious studies, of course, an awful lot of people who work in that area, also in their other work professionally, do just that. They, they have work um, within religions as pastors or reverends or whatever it might be, or monks, mm-hmm. um, and they spend some of their time when they're not in the lecture hall um, making just that kind of pronouncement about whether religious claims are good for people, bad for people, should or shouldn't be adopted. So it seemed to me a little unusual and I was a little taken aback by this idea of things. So has there been an, an overt debate about this? Um, I've certainly had debates about some of the issues um, I've presented uh, a papers based on the book um, in a lot of different settings, uh-huh. in universities, in, um, in we might have, you might have them over there, we have these sceptics in the pub um, where they talk about things, so I've presented them, um, and a few other places, um, but I think in some, in some of the university settings, the idea that I'm coming giving a, a university seminar in which I'm not merely describing New Age spirituality or mind-building spirit things. I'm not making sociological uh, claims based on qualitative or quantitative research. I'm actually saying, look at these ideas. These ideas seem to be quite bad ideas. Or these ideas seem to have potentially rather outcomes which surely we should judge as being negative. Um, That, I think, is what people found um, a little uh, unusual. But you must be taking a point of view. I mean, it's bad from what angle? From the angle of, of Buddhist epistemology, for example, um, from a Christian theistic point of view, or um, I'll say certainly bad from a Buddhist epistemological point of view, as it happens. But yeah, the way in which I was mostly making the claims um, in the papers based on the book was that the, the kinds of mind, body, spirit, spirituality that I was looking at um, were bad in terms of they were doing harm to the idea of truth through an overly inclusive open idea of truth that I found was looked very benign from a distance but the more you looked at it, the more troubling I found it and I also felt there was a the mind body spirit and new age phenomena was allied with a depoliticization of belief in general both religious and non-religious belief uh-huh. uh, and then my, my third and I think um, the point that I hold quite strongly but I found less, less support from, from other people I've talked to talk um, the idea that actually engaging in that world is unfulfilling. Uh-huh. And actually in, in terms of dealing with the human questions of particularly mortality and finitude and those big existential questions, that 
some of the world's traditional faiths have actually got quite interesting engagements with those, whereas I found much of the mind, body, spirit, spiritual, but not religious world um, engagements with them to be what I guess we could call a rather thin soup answer. So the thin soup, not a very substantive. Thin soup, yeah. Meaty, not the kind of thing a vegetarian normally says, but a kind of not sufficiently <laughs> meaty um, response. I, I've, um, I've been looking at religions too for, for many years, mm. and um, I, I used to sort of pick and point and, and try and understand and make judgments about religions, but I ended up, it ended up with me coming down to the individual. And I, I come to the conclusion that there are really two approaches that you can take to any religion, and, mm. and which, is, um, which tend to be either or, that either you're coming to it for consolation, or you're coming to it for a challenge. Yeah. And in every case and in every religion, the, the, the consolatory types tend to get immersed in dogma. Um, they tend to be looking for short-term escape or relief. And they're, they're very averse to pushing the envelope. Yeah, I think this, the, that's interesting. I think the second type that you identified is, is interesting because I think in some... Not, I think, necessarily all, but in some um, of the kinds of spirituality I was talking about, some of the New Age spirituality particularly, um, the, the, the absence of challenge is um, almost fundamental to the nature of it. Yeah. In that because so much of those are rejecting the idea of orthodoxy, you call it before I'm sure, pick and mix or buffet approaches, if you don't like aspects of different religions that you're picking and mixing from, you don't pick them. You know, so if you're, if you're um, trying to avoid challenge, um, and look perhaps, as you put it, for consolation, it's all too easy to pick a bit of Buddhist meditation, um, a bit of you know, Sufi mysticism. You know, to pick bits that, that suit, I mean, this is, to perhaps put it overly strongly, almost seem to fit your lifestyle. You have to find the wing, which therefore doesn't require you to do anything. And so I think the lack of challenge is almost kind of symptomatic of some kind of spirituality we've seen developing. Yeah, it seems to be that way. But is that not better than pursuing a life of crime and debauchery? What I'm saying is at least it's a step in the right direction, or is it not? What I wanted to try and explore and I hope to at least partly do so in the book, is that we get presented often in our society with a, um, an example of a kind of cultural bifurcation, a kind of fallacy which says either you've got a spiritual side which appreciates all these things and kind of engages in that spiritual world, or you're just a criminal uh, debauchery uh, obsessed um, materialist. What I want to to try and think about was, is it possible mm -hmm. to entirely reject what we would con consider spiritual, the world of the spirit in a certain sense of it, in a sense to not believe in any of that, and also not be a materialist, nihilist, only interested in what yourself, because you're quite right, we do know how to be happy um, without religion, it just involves um, not caring about other people and just satisfying your own selfish desires. But I thought, well, is there room to f entirely reject beliefs in spirits, 
beliefs in an afterlife, beliefs in a higher world, you know, entirely reject all of that, and at the same time, not be mere shallow, shallow narcissistic, uh, debauchery of obsessed individuals, you know, or in another way. Yeah. So let me ask you the big question now. In, in the light of that, for you, does Buddhism matter? Or how does it matter? It matters in two um, contexts. One is less interesting, I think, uh, than the other. The first, which is less interesting, is it matters to me because it's part of my personal um, history of looking at um, this and that I was brought to think about these topics by um, thinking about the the role Buddhism has played in Western culture, which is fascinating. It's very interesting. The other example I use sometimes is a cocktail. With, with the cocktail, you always have a base drink. I think Buddhism has almost always been the kind of the vodka of the way religion. <laughs> yeah. I'm working that metaphor up at the moment. Um, but so Buddhism has always got chucked in with that. And yet I'm convinced somehow that, that some forms of a more philosophically inclined Theravada Buddhism which, of course, has been very popular in European philosophy departments for lots of reasons, um, is actually intensely anti-spiritual or has the potential to be quite anti-spiritual, not in its literalist readings of a world populated by beings who pass through karma and things, but in some of the ways that contemporary um, non-Buddhist and ex-Buddhist and all these kind of American particularly movements have looked at it. So I think there's that. But I also think... Buddhism is interesting if you read Buddhist texts through an existentialist lens. Quite a long time, and I'm tempted to leave it behind because I've, I've believed it for so long, and I think it must be false, uh, or a kind of a conditioned way of seeing it. But I still really strongly adhere to the idea that there's something about, something very rewarding around reading the early Buddhist texts and thinking, these are a really powerful and effective analysis of the nature of the human condition. There seems to be within those texts, um, I'm, I'm mostly familiar with Pali Canon texts and things, um, there seems to be within them stories about the human condition, ways of thinking about responsibility, um, ways about thinking about how, um, how one comes to have the frame of mind or the states of mind that one has, that we don't seem to get much anywhere else. So why am I angry? You know, how does anger come to arise? In my... um, the meditative and, and philosophical ways of dealing with those questions, which are quite important questions, you know, why do I think the things I think, um, seem to be handled remarkably well by many forms of Buddhism and remarkably badly by a lot of society. But it's, it's in that way that it matters. Yeah, quite. To what extent do your students experience it as something to do rather than um, a way of looking at the world? Good question, I think, but it's very hard within the traditional format of a university, obviously, where you're, you're not teaching people who've come to undergo a process of um, explicit self-transformation in that sense that you might get people who've attending a meditation retreat. So they've come from a process of educational transformation, if they even see it as that. They've come to pay and get a degree, amongst other things, you know, to move on. Um, so you, and you're also restricted by the strictures of the university system. Um, you also want to fulfil some of their expectations in terms of your own responsibility 
in terms of giving them a basis for history of Buddhism, where is, what is Buddhism here? Because many of us shouldn't survive entirely ignorant of what Buddhism is, other than, other than a vague, benign feeling about Buddhism, because it's kind of everywhere in our culture, it's probably a good thing, Buddhism. They see Buddhas as decoration, as interior decor everywhere. But So you want to feel you want to give them that. But I think you, one does want to, I mean, I have someone come and do meditation with my class every year. I think it's important it's not me, because they see me all the time, week in, week out. They, you know. And also, I think I want to provide a bit of distance between me talking about Buddhism in an academic context and talking about what the texts say and how to read the texts and what how we've ended up with the text we ended up with, and then someone coming and doing a explicit meditation class with them. So I, I dragged somebody else up from Bristol um, to do that with them. So that's sort of like a, a field trip in reverse. Yes, yeah, so kind of in the journey, they go nowhere but inside, I guess. Okay, and how do they respond to that on the whole? I have had students in the past who've been very uncomfortable because what you think meditation is and what they then come to experience aren't always the same. So sitting with oneself in silence for a few minutes doesn't sound so hard. It's actually very, <laughs> it's, it's really hard. And so I think sitting, coping with their own feelings and things, some of them I think, I'm sure, just think they're, sit there and think about their shopping list and their, you know, what they're planning to do later. But I think most of them, due to the nature of a kind of structured exercise that eventually leads them to spending um, a good few minutes in their own company, um, they find that um, a bit challenging, a bit difficult. But um, I hope that some of them, and some of them I know, will go on and do more meditation. Some of them report to me and tell me about taking meditation classes. They, they engage with the course on Buddhism in a really detailed way. I, we were just looking at my marks, all our marks today in the exam board. Uh, but some of the highest marks that the students get across the, the degree is around this module. That's not because they're taught exceptionally well, because that isn't the case in my other courses that I teach. Um, but when they engage with Buddhism, it's not all of them, of course. Some of them really get taken by it. And that doesn't mean that they want to shave their heads and take vows and put robes on necessarily, but they really want to... Um, there seems, and I think this is the case for me when I was... There's something rather compelling about the psychological explanatory efficiency of Buddhism. It seems that there's a confluence. Modern society is at a point where Buddhism is just... It just seems to be a, a perfect fit in some ways for our, for our needs. I'm not allowed to say spiritual needs to you, am I? Um, yeah, and I think so. I think people identify. Well, I think it's kind of mixed blessing. It's kind of complicated. It needs study and, and picking because I think the penetration into our culture of the idea of of mindfulness and mindfulness meditation being I'm not sure about elsewhere outside of the UK, but certainly the UK mindfulness is everywhere. Uh -huh. Oh, it is here too. It's popular. It's pop. You can't kind of drop a Sunday supplement in the new year without getting a new you mindfulness guide free out of the paper. And, you know, it's, yeah. and CBT, cognitive behavioral therapists use mindfulness. GPs and you know, your doctor will say, you're already stressed or you're getting depressed. You need to go on a course for mindfulness. So, and I'm largely convinced that that has beneficial outcomes. You know, I'm sure there are, there are issues. But there is a kind of new age, Western, new agey Western Buddhism the people at Slavoj Žižek have written a lot about saying there's a real 
that that coalescence between Buddhism and Western culture is actually not around a site, say, of resistance to materialism, but is actually very much associated with um, late capitalism. And obviously, a lot of people in in the world of Western Buddhism things reject what he has to say very forcefully, mostly on the grounds that he doesn't know much about Buddhism. Um, but I'm I'm reluctant to to reject it too out of hand, partly because I think he's quite. Um, an important thinker, and actually seems to have a lot to say on other things that, um, yeah, uh, whether or not we ultimately agree with all of them, very interesting, quite insightful. He gets a bit stroppy sometimes, doesn't he? Yeah, very stroppy, very sweaty, but that's kind of all right. Basically, he's saying that mindfulness is becoming the, the opium of the 21st century people. Yeah, absolutely. In that short, that unbelief book, which is our first encounters, books on Buddhism, as were ideas on Buddhism, it seems to say, you know, there's this kind of fervor of awfulness. We live in a society that's so awful and we're so pressured by time and people are so kind of marginalised and socially excluded. But rather than thinking, my life's mad, why am I working 14 hours a day in two jobs or whatever it is, to, um, I should do something about my material conditions. Um, Buddhism says to people, no, sorry, just calm down. Do this instead for half an hour a week. That will allow you to put a pressure valve. Uh, allow you to cope with that with which you should not cope. Um, yeah, which is kind of interesting. I think well, there might be something to that. If it was kind of shallow reading Buddhism, perhaps yeah. people use it in a very shallow way like that. Um, and there's also, I think, this kind of has a parallel with what I was saying earlier about New Age religion. Then that if you become preoccupied with the idea of the inner journey, um, to the exclusion of an outer one, you can start to say to people that yes, you might have really crappy material conditions, and you might not have. But being interested in material conditions is a sign of spiritual immaturity. You know, caring about the fact you haven't got enough to eat or your roof leaks or whatever. Well, that doesn't matter. You can, you know, that, you, you, you're rich in the spirit. I said, well, I quite like my material conditions, not just for me, but everybody would be quite good before I even slightly worry about my inner riches. So I think, I think he identifies some things in Western culture which we take from or associate with Buddhism, that are troubling, as well as the more benign and positive aspects. To what extent is this a hangover from the, from the 60s and 70s radicalism and, and communism? You know? That period uh, is still being played out, those kind of radical changes. Um, and the association of Buddhism with counterculture is a very interesting one. And yet, mindfulness and MBSR and CBT are, are being associated very much with the establishment. Yeah. In fact, they're only available through the establishment. Absolutely. I think that's because the children of the 60s are now the establishment. They've kind of grown up, populated by people who were young or even barely born in that period. Um, but yeah, I think there's a kind of split there again. And Buddhism, Buddhism's position in Western culture is not simple. It's kind of complicated. Um, um, and I think that's part of that patchwork mosaic is a story that comes out of the counterculture and the hippie thing and all that. Uh, and part of it isn't. You know, and part of it is part of the transformation of the consequences of that period. And part of it is to do with other sources, other ways into Western Europe that we've seen Buddhism and certainly North America, Buddhism has entered into these traditions by a variety of different things. The, you know, the politics associated with the Free Tibet movement, for example. 
kind of migrants from um, traditionally British countries are very different in North America from the way they are in Europe in terms of their demographic. And that obviously nuances the Buddhism and how it's kind of the flavor of it in those countries is different because of that. But that Buddhism is not big in the same way that mindfulness is, is becoming big or pop. Not, pop is a better word than big, I think. Mindfulness is huge, and it, and it really is, it's a distillation of what is important in Buddhism according to certain people. Um, and I would probably, and you and I probably would agree with most of that, but still, who are they to make those decisions? Yeah, I guess. Um, I think you're right in saying mindfulness is bigger and bigger, um, and there is, it seems to suddenly be a very um, fashionable, that's probably too um, insulting word, but um, it seems very contemporary to do research into the effects of mindfulness, um, both from neurological but also in terms of psychology and, and broader sociological forms. Um, so mindfulness, I think, has that, and there is a sense, well, who are they to say, um, well, in a sense, who is anyone to say they can't try it and see if it works? You know, to look at something like the Buddhist tradition and say there seems to be amongst this religion which has any belief in possibly belief in all these kind of beings and in these realms and ideas of karma amongst all that cultural ephemera which you may or may, you may not choose to take on board there seems to be some technique or method which kind of does something rather special to people that has a certain value to people and when you um, when you drench it in all the cultural trappings that go with it, that might actually not particularly make it more effective, and it might put a lot of people off. But when you just take the mindfulness as a relatively straightforward method, um, and people do it, and they work through it, and it has to be stressed, I think, you know, as we mentioned briefly earlier, that kind of activity, it, it might be relatively straightforward to describe. It's not straightforward to do, it goes against a lot of hippie stereotypes of Buddhism is just sitting around doing nothing. It's really hard work for people, and people find it much more challenging than I think they expect. But if there's something in there of really important value, and importantly, that benefits people who are in crisis, mm -hmm. people who are having difficulties with depression, with addiction, with anxiety, if it provides really genuine benefits and relief to people in, in really awful situations of need, um, then I think the question of pressure should be, who are we to say they shouldn't be using it and seeing where it does and doesn't work? Oh, I agree. There are the purists who complain that it's being watered down too much and it's a shame that it's just being used as a way of uh, enjoying the present moment and smelling the roses and that the true benefits are not really being explored. Yeah, I think the idea of Buddhism light as it were, or the idea that I think there is a genuine case there to be made, not in terms of some of the more cultural trappings so much, is that actually Buddhism, or the message that we find within much of Buddhist texts, might be seen as a very profound one, and may go beyond some of the benefits of mindfulness. You might argue that actually as the mindfulness tradition matures, it can go one of two ways. It can go lots of ways, I'm sure, but yeah. Quite, it might go down the route of merely being a therapeutic response to difficulties where you can you stop being as stressed and start enjoying life a bit more, which I'm in favour of. I think that's kind of all right. Um, but also in terms of 
much more radical self-transformation, um, might start thinking, well, what does it mean if we start having a culture in which lots of people start caring more about each other? Yeah. So it might, at the moment, mindfulness is very much focused on the individual. And my anxiety about it um, is probably that it's insufficiently political. You know, it doesn't kind of engage with questions of justice, fairness, social equity and things. Mm. I think, well, maybe the scope in there to develop, yes, in that way of treating individuals in a psychological way, but might there not be sociological outcomes? I'm starting to have piecemeal uh, at the moment a culture in which lots of people really, really, because you would hope if mindfulness meditation is doing its job, as it were, is doing what it it claims to do, or what it often seems to do, it makes people not only less anxious, able to smell the flowers and enjoy the moment without all these kind of intruding negative thoughts and things, but actually part of that is actually caring about the suffering of others. And so you would say mindfulness meditation, if it only becomes a therapeutic tool to treat people suffering from anxiety disorders and related things, hasn't fulfilled its full remit and potential. And it has, you might say, Buddhism, mindfulness meditation, whatever we want to yeah. describe it as, has potential for individual, also for kind of socio-political engagements as well, that I don't think many of us at least have kind of quite worked out what that might look like yet. That might be a generation or two of trying to work it out, but I think that's kind of important. That's very interesting. So it's possible that Buddhism light may in fact have the heaviest effect on our society in the long term because it becomes widespread and because it's it's not really tangible and it's not something that can be picked apart. It just becomes a way of life. Possibly, and if Buddhism light is good, does that it doesn't become the kind of Buddhism that Nietzsche fears ruling Europe in nineteenth century. He's worried about this kind of a kind of Buddhism that's nihilistic and is the first sort. Let's just relax and enjoy things. Yeah, life's short, you'll soon be dead, everything that you ever care about will soon be over and everyone you ever loved will soon be dead. Never mind. It's a little cup of tea. <laughs> I don't think that is the kind of Buddhism that we're missing with a much more radically engaged political form of Buddhism that says if I care about me, I have to care about everybody else too. And I have to care about things like equity and fairness. My, yeah, that, that kind of thing that seems like now, seems peripheral to much of our cultural development now, um, you might argue has potential for a significant political impact. I think it depends on people actually confronting their own suffering. Because that, that, that's the source of empathy, really. It's when, when you see the way that you suffer, then you realize, oh my God, you know, everyone else is, is going through this crap too. Mm. Yeah, and for a lot of people, the realization that they're not the agent of their own suffering entirely, or they're not the agent of it in terms of it's not all their fault. Um, yes, you can do things that mean you suffer from it less in terms of, um, you know, interfering in your own consciousness in the way that meditation allows you to do or enables you to kind of start doing um, my suffering isn't all my fault because I'm a crap person who deserves nothing. Yeah. The fact that I haven't got enough, whatever it might be in society, people might feel, comes from the way that society is structured or the hierarchies we've got or various things. That kind of realisation, and therefore the suffering of it is widespread. And it looks as if, uh, it's my suspicion that in the, in the West we're looking at a decline. I don't think it's going to be terribly dramatic everywhere. It probably is in some places. 
And I don't think we're going to return to the uh, to the prosperity of the of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. I think we're going to have to get used to making compromises, and, uh, and especially in terms of what we expect from government. Yeah, I think that not only due to the, you know, the, uh, the rise of other powers in the world and things, but largely, I think, it'll, although it's starting to bite in a very invisible way so far, due to environmental resources, you know, they're, they're, they're scarce, they're limited, they're finite, and we've acted for half a century as if they're not finite. And obviously, that's not sustainable. We can't go on. And there are, you know, billions of people who would quite like a share of some of the prosperity of the world. Yeah. And it's becoming less acceptable to, to keep them back, as it were, by sheer brute force. Uh, and what we expect from government in terms of giving us things might be under threat. Um, we might want government to do more enabling things for us, but that would be up to us to choose. Certainly, be up to the next generation because they'll be the government. Yeah, and, and how does this fit in with Asia? Because I've, I've noticed recently there's there's growing interest in Buddhism in Asia, in India as well, and they're they're learning from a lot of Western teachers. The Western and Buddhist teachers are selling a lot of books in Asia. They're looking at it through new eyes, and you know it's very different to be raised in a religion and to to go to it as a as a convert, as it were, or to explore it as a, as an adult. So I think that there's certainly something going on. It's interesting because I think they're they're learning. There's potential learning going on in two ways. One is the kind of thing you describe with Western teachers reinterpreting the tradition. Um, but then, of course, you have the idea of them learning from the idea of what a religion is. So if you look at what people have somewhat deliberately but not always wrongly called Buddhist fundamentalism in places like Sri Lanka, uh, I think got this idea of a religion that needs protecting and nationally associating, it looks an awful lot like very Western concepts of what a religion is and the division between them and communal politics. And so you get concerned that Buddhism becomes, rather than being something um, outside of traditional religious Contrast, it becomes just another player in a whole bunch of um, socio political power games, another form of communal politics. We see yeah. these people, the buddies, what concessions do they want? Well, they want these, okay, how much of those can we give them in without upsetting the Muslims? Yeah. And once you end up with Buddhism as that, it ceases to be the kind of um, tradition that we've been talking about so far that wants to try and move away from that. Yeah, it's not about Dharma. No, that isn't about Dharma, that's about me, mine. About politics. Yes, yeah, absolutely, it's about politics. Uh, and for many, Buddhism is sought to be almost like a meta-religion, to be kind of not one of these people um, arguing about who's right and who's wrong, but to say, well, let's talk about consequences and outcomes, uh, and let's talk about what we can do to reduce suffering in the world. Everything, everything at that, you know, you might even go as far as saying, that's what a Dharma is. It's a method that reduces suffering. Anything that reinforces the Dharma is that which reduces human and animal suffering. That which increases it is against Dharma. That kind of um, guiding principle is lost in the clamour about political rights. And we hear, of course, lots of nationalists in this country saying England is a Christian country, particularly given current um, debates about Islam and the place of Islam in society, the rise of some particularly nasty far-right organisations 
that that say they're not racist, they're anti-Muslim, and they use that anti-Islamic sentiment as a cloak for which to hide behind very traditional racist nationalist politics. So let me let me ask you one last question: What, what would what would we be doing in the West now in terms of what used to be called a, a spiritual life, were it not for, for the accessibility of Buddhism? Would we have seen a radical change in the uh, denominations of Christianity, say? Because a lot of people who were, say in the 70s, tired of the supposedly drab grayness of uh, Anglican Protestantism, fled into the arms of the colorful and exotic be it Hinduism or Buddhism, and took the hippie road east. So if those people who might have rep- you might arguably represented a dynamic and um, dissatisfied um, demographic hadn't left a lot of the established religions, mm-hmm. they might have affected within it a much more radical transformation. Or they might become selfish nihilists and just you know had loads of fun. Um, but I think most people actually fled into the arms of Buddhism and Hinduism um, or at least a substantial number of them, were looking for something different, something that they weren't getting or they didn't feel was available through the traditional religions. Uh-huh. If those people had stayed within those religions or a significant number of them had stayed within them, we might have seen a different kind of Church of England, a different kind of Anglican version of Roman Catholicism, you know, a different way that might have been transformed in different ways. Now, um, you drive past church yeah. car parks other than some charismatic evangelical uh, traditions, an awful lot of them are full of old people. You know, we, we don't have the full car parks outside churches you see in North America. Only certain parts of North America, small pockets. Yeah. Well, no, large pockets. But there's a, there's a massive division in North America. It's, it's, it's very polarized, especially in the U.S. Yeah. That's interesting. What you were saying about about the potential for Christianity and Buddhism not come along is quite interesting because I wonder um, if if those old theistic traditions uh, would have the ability to absorb secularism and, and, and even atheism in the, in the way that Buddhism has been able to. I think you see little pockets of it. You do find pockets of radicalism, certainly within the church in this country. You saw political radicalism across the spectrum within the church, um, not as vocal, not as loud as it might well have been. Um, and certainly, but it might have, whether or not it would have adopted a kind of way of thinking that accepted agnostics and secularists, probably, and it probably does in some denominations now, uh, whether it accepted a, well, you find Unitarians and Unitarian brotherhoods and people, but they tend to be a very quiet voice. Whether that constituency of people would have been much louder, much more powerful and much more influential in the absence of Buddhism. We can't answer but we can speculate it may well have done. It's unlikely to have been smaller. Mm. And yet in a funny way Buddhists are quite passionate, aren't they? Yes, despite all that get rid of passion thing. Despite the call for dispassion. Well, people are often really, um, partly that further of a convert thing, but also the idea that if you're going to sign up for a religion that isn't the one that you came into this life with, the one you were brought up in, uh-huh. um, you might take it quite seriously. If you practice in the religion you were born into, for a lot of people, that's just like normal life. Yeah. You do it without thinking, you pop along to church, or it was a Buddhist in a Buddhist country, you pop along, you engage with various kind of traditions. 
but you don't give it the kind of thought where if you've if you, as it were, auditioned different religions and chosen to be a Buddhist, you've looked at them, think you take it seriously, which quite a lot of Western Buddhists certainly do. You thought, well, you know, this Zen tradition really isn't for me, and perhaps I don't want to be kind of follow the Hindu tradition that's things associated with. But I really found something in Thai forest tradition Buddhism, say, um, that really speaks to me, and that that that's the one for me. Then you, you know, you've made a really conscious chosen choice to do something that's quite new often involves learning quite a lot yeah. things you didn't know previously. Yeah. There was entire you know, stuff you don't even know you know. I know about, you know, I know all these kind of weird stories about Christianity that I was brought up with without even thinking that anyone doesn't know them. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, if you adopt a Buddhist tradition, all that cultural background that's used as illustrations, that's used in books, that's used, you have to learn it all. So yeah, people often get really excited and get a lot of pleasure from immersing themselves in a different milieu culturally as well as philosophically um of course there are a, lot, a whole bunch of dangers of uh, attachment yeah and um, to come with that so, of course um but uh, it is um people are feel very strongly about this Buddhism. and you know leaving one side question about attachment um why shouldn't they talking about passion and buddhists just to wrap this up yeah and i'm not sure what what knowledge you have or exposure you have to tibetan buddhism but do you see it as, as particularly um, different from other forms of Buddhism in terms of, in the West, I mean, in the way that it's it's come into the West, in the demands that it makes of its followers, um, in the, the forms, the Catholicism of it? Yeah, I think the, I mean, it was, often we get Tibetan Buddhism presented to us in the West in like meditation classes and things, which, as though it's a generic, generic form of Buddhism, yeah. partly due to the um, prevalence of the Dalai Lama. Yeah. A lot of people who aren't really familiar with Buddhism think, Dalai Lama, that is Buddhism. He's like the Pope of Buddhism. Yeah. Many people who have the West who studied in the UK Buddhism at all feel a little tiny bit uncomfortable with the magical ritual Catholic nature of um, Tibetan Buddhism. Yeah, well, some of us are very uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but as you know, it's not it's not that surprising, and it's also due to historical colonial reasons. But the many of the forms that have been most popular amongst certainly intellectuals and universities and things in the UK um, and in much Europe have been the Southeast Asian Theravada traditions. Yeah, yeah. They not only is the, the link with different parts of the world specific, uh, but also people have found a lot of philosophers found them something that, that looks like they can get on with it. Uh, in a way that also I think well, some people have found out about Buddhism through that route, and they're familiar with um, some Pali-eyed texts and some ideas from Theravada tradition. Then they come across um, Tibetan teaching and think, oh, I thought Buddhism didn't have any of that. How disappointing. Yeah. And so it sometimes upsets people's ideas about what Buddhism is. And that's not always a bad thing. But um, certainly many of us would feel that it introduces a whole realm of cultural and, dare I say, kind of spiritual ideas that many of us feel aren't necessarily the ones which Buddhism has its best to offer. Yeah. As a very diplomatic attempt to answer, I think. I think it's uh, the Pali Khan and Theravada Buddhism has, has a much closer, it's much, much easier to connect with the Greek traditions of, of philosophy and thought and practice 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, like Thomas McEverly's book showed that rather well. And, and Tibetan Buddhism really stands on one side. But it appeals to a lot of people, I think, that, um, who are looking for something from Buddhism, which is very much to do with, I, don't, I think this is kind of fair to say, relatively fair, the kind of exotica. Yes, I think that's exactly the word. That's what attracted me. Something different. I do not want this, this kind of idea of religion. I want something entirely different. Yeah. And it's not just the, it's not just what they teach. It's it's the way they present. The Buddha, the Tibetans are. Um, I, I hate to make a generalization, but the Tibetans really are terrific at PR. <laughs> they know how to build temples. They know how to get people in. They're very very good at it, and they present a very uh, warm and incredibly welcoming message. Mm. Buddhism, generally speaking, partly by accident, has very good PR in the West. Anyway, whenever you've mentioned Buddhism to people, West, they generally think it's probably a good thing. It's seen as the peaceful religion, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I tell a story when I was studying for my PhD. I used to visit a friend occasionally, and his mum would be very welcoming. Um, but she often said, what are you studying again? I said, oh, I'm Buddhism. She said, oh, I love Buddhists. They're so gentle. And she'd never met him. <laughs> now, if I walk into someone's house, they've got a Buddha on the mantelpiece, I don't think. Or, no, but if they've got a copy of a, a holy book from somebody, or some other symbol very prominently displayed in their home, it might make me uh, think, what's that about? In a way that a Buddha wouldn't at all set off that train of thought. Well, David Webster, thank you very much. This has been a very enlightening discussion, if I can use that word. Why not, yeah. And thank you very much. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it very much. For more about what you've heard in today's podcast, visit us at thenakedmonk.com. There you'll find an entire webpage devoted to this and all other podcasts, as well as dozens of no-hold-barred blog posts. You can leave comments, chat with other visitors, and email me, Stephen Scatini, with your comments and questions. The music is Bach's Violin Partita No. 2 in D minor, performed by Christian Edinger in Brooklyn in 2011 and released into the public domain. The Naked Monk is a labor of love. If you'd like to support our work, you'll find a donate button on the left side of our website just underneath the logo. Thanks for listening. See you next time.